Welcome to David and David on Real Estate. Join us as we explore the ins and outs of the real estate market. Good morning and welcome to the David and David on Real Estate podcast. We are today on episode number 57. Yeah, I'm running out of fingers and toes to count these episodes. Yeah, no kidding. Absolutely. And we have a very special guest with us. We have uh, today a litigation lawyer with us, uh, and we'd like to welcome Sarah Erskine. Thanks, uh, David and David. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> no, the pleasure is all ours. Uh, I, I can't believe it took 57 episodes, Sarah, to get you on. But David Corman and I, you know, we, we always talk about um, a lot of legal matters, a lot of legal concepts. And, you know, we always try to sort of center these conversations where, uh, we encourage all parties to avoid litigation at all costs, like a plague. But, you know, um, everything that we recommend and everything that we talk about at some point, you know, it does break down and parties do have to seek the help of a litigation lawyer. So, Sarah, you know, we really look forward to this conversation today where we can dive in and explore the darker side of all our conversations. Well, it's actually great timing because with all of the changes in interest rates, there's a lot of real estate litigation that's starting. Yeah. And, and we're, you know, in my practice, Sarah, I think, you know, we're, we're trying to avoid litigation, obviously, because that's our, our whole goal and focus is to try and get transactions closed and get parties to act reasonably, even if they have particular legal rights and they might be the innocent, you know, in quote, innocent party. But right now, I think they need to have some flexibility uh, because we're having that conversation on almost every single file right now, even if there isn't an issue yet. We signed an agreement, there's no issue, we're moving towards closing, but the clients are calling. What if the other side doesn't close? Then what happens, right? And we're having that conversation all the time and we're trying to you know, focus with her on not getting there, but it's really important for them to understand what does happen if you're in breach of a contract, if you can't close, and then we need someone like you, Sarah, to come in and, uh, you know, and clean up the mess that we all created. Well, I'm not sure that uh, your clients who are selling properties are creating messes at the moment. It's probably the buyers who all of a sudden can't afford mortgages anymore. Yeah, and that's a big issue. And I always tell clients, like, are you looking to buy a property? Or are you looking to buy litigation? Are you looking to sell a property? Or are you looking to retain a litigation lawyer? Like, you've got to you have to understand your rights, but you also have to understand where this is going to go. So maybe we have to go through a little bit of, you know, what happens when the deal doesn't close and the real estate lawyers, you know, in spite of their best efforts to try and negotiate something, sometimes there just isn't anything to negotiate. They can't get their mortgage. Buyer just can't get the mortgage, can't afford the mortgage, or they don't qualify for enough money because the prices have dropped and the interest rates have gone up, up and they just can't, you know, they've exhausted all their friends and relatives and they just can't close. They can't get enough money. Right. Yeah. I feel for these people, particularly in the GTA, because I've bought houses in the GTA and I know that you go in with your big offer, no conditions, because otherwise nobody's going to accept it. And then you get to a stage where a lot of people now with the interest rates going up, can't qualify for mortgages. They're in the most difficult position of all. Yeah, and we are seeing a lot of buyer remorse cases. We deal with those all the time where 
uh, an offer submitted and oftentimes the buyer wants to negotiate the best possible deal. So they remove conditions, they go in firm, buyer wakes up the next morning and they say, you know what, what have I done? I know I think I got a good deal, but I'm just not comfortable. I'm not going to proceed. And uh, the problem is that these offers are signed under seal, even though there's no consideration, there's no deposit, there's no exchange of funds. It's still a legally binding offer. It is. Um, and something that all buyers should be aware of is that these days, the courts are not on their side. So when it comes to signing a legally binding offer to buy real estate, the courts are enforcing those. Whether you can afford it or not, whether you get a mortgage or not, if you don't have conditions and you go in with a firm offer, expect that either you're going to close. And if you don't close, that you're going to be on the hook anyways. Yeah, so just on, on the buyer remorse type of issue, like we've experienced this before, you know, they, they parties negotiate an agreement of purchase and sale on a Saturday or something like that. They sign it, you know, initial everything, everything's done properly, but it says the deposit's supposed to be delivered within 24 hours or 48 hours or something like that. And then they have this remorse, like David talking about, and they say, no, I don't want to go, so I'm not giving my deposit check. You know, get me out of the deal. Okay, it is an, an agreement for sale binding, even though they don't deliver the deposit check. Like, are they sometimes there's a perception out there that if they don't deliver the deposit check, they can get out of the deal. So it, it sort of works like the deposit check is like a 24 or 48 hour cooling off period. And if they don't deliver it, they can get out of the deal. Unfortunately, for the people that uh, think there's a cooling off period, or if they don't deliver a deposit check, they can. Uh, get out of the deal, they're wrong. I actually have several cases in my office right now where buyers had buyer's remorse. They woke up the next day and they said, nope, I don't wanna go through with this deal. And then they didn't deliver the deposit. It makes them no less on the hook. It's still a binding agreement of purchase and sale. You signed it under seal and it's enforceable. And I've actually come across, it's really interesting actually, because I came across a situation where a mortgage broker um, not a real estate broker, but a mortgage broker actually gave advice to um, one of their clients that because of the rising interest rates and the fall of some of the prices, that they shouldn't deliver a deposit and shouldn't close a deal because they could get a house at a better price. And I just shook my head at, as the client is telling me this story because um, first of all, A, don't listen to a mortgage broker for legal advice. That's a bad idea. And second of all, um, they're wrong. And it doesn't mean that you can walk away from it. It doesn't mean you can find a better deal somewhere else and there aren't repercussions. Well, Sarah, I can tell you for a fact, I had a situation about two months ago where I had a lawyer on the other side of our transaction insisting that there was no binding green purchase and sale because they never delivered the deposit check so that the terms of the agreement weren't met. And I said, no, it's, that's just one of the first things you know, to contract. That's one of the first elements of the contract that you have to fulfill. If you don't deliver the check, you're in breach of the contract. There's still a contract. If you don't deliver the deposit, you're in breach of that contract. And that's a question of what the parties want to do about it. So if they don't, you know, so you're talking about a mortgage broker giving bad advice. I'm dealing with a lawyer giving bad advice. And I start, you know, feeding him information and materials and you know, to, to look at, and he's you know, practicing know, half a dozen years or something and, and thinks that that's the law. 
And the problem is everybody has been working in a market for the last number of years where transactions weren't going off the rails as much as they are. And people didn't have the remorse and things like that. So people forgot that this is the reality. It's a contract. You don't fulfill any, any term of the contract, you breach the contract. Now, then, you know, what are, what are the parties going to do about that? If it's been on the market a few days, they got an offer, they don't get the deposit. You know, is the seller going to look to sue right away and try and enforce that? You know, and if they try and do that, then they'd be looking for specific performance, right? Maybe explain what the odds are of getting that type of an order. Um, slim to none. So don't think that you're going to be able to force the purchaser to buy your house because uh, the courts just aren't doing that. Specific performance is one of those things that unless your property is so unique or sometimes we see it when they're builders who are building custom homes and the custom home is so unique that only the person who originally bought the home is going to be interested in buying it. The courts may, and it's not even for certain, but they may award specific performance, but otherwise you're into damages. And when you're dealing with damages, there's so many factors that are going to influence what those damages might be. In this market, the damages are getting bigger because the prices of houses are falling and the deals um, they can't get a deal uh, that is as good as the one that maybe went away because the buyer didn't deliver a deposit till said they weren't going to close the deal. So it used to be up until the mortgage uh, thing, uh, rates changed and there was more restrictions on getting a mortgage. You could put a house back on the market um, an hour later after somebody said, I'm going to close. And, and I would recommend this to clients, put the house back on the market right away and see if you can get a deal. And sometimes the deal was as good or sometimes a little bit better, but that doesn't happen anymore, which is why so many people are thinking about litigation, I think. Yeah. And that's the issue in, you know, with the market that we're in, um, rates are rising, you know, prices are falling. There's, uh, there's downward pressure on price. And, you know, people have this misperception. And I mean, David, you hit the nail on the head where, you know, if, if lawyers are not understanding what contract law and the obligation of buyers to fulfill these contractual obligations are, how is the public, how are, how is the rest of the industry supposed to be dealing with this? And I'm going to call it a little bit of a crisis because, I mean, we see it in the brokerage level almost on an everyday basis where I get a call from you know, an, an, another broker owner saying, oh my God, you know, there is no deal here because there's no consideration. And I have to explain to them the basics of contract law, right? But I mean, if, if the industry professionals are not understanding the magnitude of the problem, how is the consumer supposed to understand what their contractual obligations are? Yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, the, and they're, they're reading things in, in papers and things online and a lot of the stories are sensationalized and, and the reporters aren't going into an in-depth in study and analysis of what it means to, to be in breach of a contract or anticipatory breach or, or the, like what Sarah's talking about, what specific performance means and how hard that is to get. And, and we're in a totally different market. Like Sarah said, you know, a couple months ago, they don't deliver a deposit, like no problem. We're not going after we don't have to send a letter to reserve rights against that defaulting buyer you know we might send a letter anyways but we're probably really not going to chase them because just putting it back in the market and we're going to sell it a couple hours later maybe even for more money so but now sarah automatically you would be telling someone they don't deliver the deposit check 
You send them a letter that you're in default, you're in breach of your agreement of purchase and sale. We're reserving our rights to claim damages against you and we're gonna to sell to somebody else because we don't know what the damages are gonna be. So we're just reserving rights at that time. Oh, exactly. I'm gonna send a letter like that later today because again, another situation where a buyer walked away and walked away at a point in time where they actually could have closed, but they thought, well, I could get a house at a cheaper price. And so now it's going to be one of those situations where the Delta is probably over $100,000 now. And so that's a lot of money. And that's when it makes it worth it to talk to a litigation lawyer. If the Delta is, you know, less than $100,000 or, you know, $50,000, um, sadly, litigations quickly eats up into that amount because you got to pay the lawyer and you never get 100% of your money back when you hire a litigation lawyer. So sometimes it's not worth it. Sometimes it's better to make a deal, um, maybe lower the purchase price, you know, do all the things that David, your office does in order to try to get these deals to close, do all the negotiation because litigation just doesn't become an affordable option. But when the Delta is $100,000 or more, which is what is happening right now, then it makes it worth it for people to talk to a litigator. Right. And since you brought up the topic, sir, I don't want to put you on the spot, but like talking about legal fees, okay? And you maybe just explain how litigation lawyers charge. So if you're, if you get retained for something like this, like what what you would typically or a litigation would typically want as a retainer and what you know is a typical hourly rate to start getting involved in this process? Um, I don't think there's anything really typical because I'm in downtown Toronto. So my rates are a little bit higher than probably somebody who would be outside of downtown Toronto. It's just a function of costs of being in downtown Toronto. But most litigators that I know want to have at least a retainer up front in order to pursue litigation because there are upfront hard costs. You've got to pay to have things filed at court. You've got to pay to have process servers to serve things. And so generally I find that the retainers are between $2,500 and 5,000 sort of at a minimum. So you've got to be prepared to outlay out of your pocket money up front that the lawyers are going to hold in their trust account in order to have some security so that they can pay the costs of their out-of-pocket costs. And then most of the litigators I know work on an hourly basis. So, and the rates will range uh, between junior lawyers in our office are uh, between 275 and $400 an hour. And then the more senior lawyers are, you know, $400 an hour and up. You could probably have uh, real estate lawyers, litigation real estate lawyers that are uh, just outside of the GTA or, you know, just on the outskirts of the GTA, which may range. You could get a more senior litigator probably for three to $400 an hour. Um, But in any event, what happens when you hire a litigator is that If you're successful, we have a loser pay system, but it's never 100%. And so generally you're only gonna recover 50 to 80% of your legal costs that you're actually gonna pay out of pocket. And even then you're only gonna recover it if the other side has money to pay it. So you may be chasing someone for money. So there are so many different types of factors that you have to consider when deciding to litigate. Because the worst case scenario and something that I never want my clients to have is a paper judgment at the end of the day and they've paid me and they recovered no money. Yeah, and and that's one of the risks they really have to consider upfront. So even if they're trying to chase $100,000, let's say their damages are $100,000. Okay, they've got to lay out money. 
to, to hire you to try and recover that. You go through a whole process that could take a year, two years till you get an outcome. They could be completely successful, get a judgment, and then they can't collect on it because the other side has no money or they go bankrupt or whatever. And now they win, but, they, but they're not even recovering your legal fees. So, and they can't collect anything. So that has to be assessed as well. But just if you could maybe ballpark, even if you're chasing $100,000, if you go all the way to a trial to get a judgment, not a default judgment, let's say they're defending it, like, you know, how much could the legal fees add up to on something like that? Because the courts have really been enforcing these agreements, and so there are very few defenses for not closing a real estate transaction. So I look at every case as, can I bring this litigation and move to what we call summary judgment? So summary judgment is like a, a complex motion which you are seeking judgment. So you're having all the legal issues decided up front. If it's the right case for summary judgment, then you can probably get that heard. Um, in my office, you could get it heard between $20,000, $25,000 usually, unless there are lots of complications on either side. Um, and then if you're you know, maybe a little bit outside the GTA, you might be able to get it heard for you know, somewhere between ten dollars and $20,000. Um, so as long as it's a right case for summary judgment and the courts are enforcing these agreements, then it can actually be a much faster, first of all, um, and cheaper way to go. Because if you don't go for summary judgment, which usually can get heard within a year less sometimes, uh, the courts now are so backlogged that you'll be in litigation for two to three years minimum. And every step along the way is going to cost you more money. And by the time you get all the way down to the end of the trial, you're going to be pushing legal fees between 50 and 75,000 likely. So, yeah, and that's, you know, thanks, Sarah. Like that is it's really significant. And, and everybody has to have that discussion right up front so they know what they're getting into because it's laying out money that you hope you, you can, you're just successful at the end of the day. And then you have an ability to recover some of it. And it's not even be 100%. So if you're going to spend that versus negotiating, if there's some way to reduce a purchase price and get the deal closed, even though it leaves a bad taste in your mouth, at the end of the day, you might be better served to do that. Okay. You know, and maybe you've started the litigation process too, because that gets the attention of the other side a little bit um, as well, because they're going to start incurring costs, especially if they do have an ability to pay then you get their attention pretty fast when you get, oh, I got, I got Sarah Erskine on this now. Watch out because she's going to, you know, she's going to come after you and she's going to get a, a judgment against you. So, but that's, and just to give a little perspective to anybody watching or listening to this, our legal fees to close that transaction would probably amount to about a thousand dollars. Okay. Like that's all our legal fees typically are to close most transactions, whether you're buying or selling it's generally in that range, a little more, a little less. So, but when you get involved in litigation, it's those hours start adding up quickly. They do. They add up very quickly. And it's sort of a unique situation when you're looking at trying to negotiate a resolution and closing a deal is right now that $100,000 Delta is probably something you thought maybe I'd never get versus you know going after it in litigation and having to pay to get it. So um, having the ability to close a transaction if you can 
avoid the legal costs of pursuing it in litigation and recover as much as you can um, for the house that you want to sell. And hopefully, you know, you didn't just buy the house last year and you're on the downward slope. You bought it, you know, 10 years ago and you've had a nice gain and then it doesn't feel so bad. It's not as painful and litigation doesn't really make sense at that point. Sarah, are all litigation lawyers created equally? And, and, you know, what should the public really look for? What questions should they ask uh, when deciding to uh, which litigation lawyer to hire? That's a great question. Um, I think that litigation lawyers and clients sort of match up eventually with your personalities. So um, there are the litigation lawyers out there that are sharp, want to make sure that uh, they pursue every avenue for their client, but at the same time, they're reasonable, they're going to explain to you the pitfalls, and they're going to help counsel you to make sure that you're not spending money to, at the end of the day, have a judgment you're never going to enforce. So I, those are the best types of litigators. They're they're smart, but they they know the ups and downs, and they also know the true value of dollar. Uh, I think litigators sometimes can get, um, I guess uh, it's hard to say, a little unrealistic because we fight all the time and we get paid to fight. So, and we like it, otherwise we wouldn't do it. And so we get caught up in the fight and we forget about at the end of the day, how much things cost and whether the client is going to have value. And I think you want to make sure that you hire a litigator that has at the end of the, at their goal is the best outcome for you. Not the best fight, not you know the most fun that they're gonna have on a file. What is the best outcome for the client? And that's the goal you always have to work towards. So what are some of the questions that you know realtors and their clients should be asking their litigation lawyer? I think the first thing you always have to ask a litigator is what's the downside? What's the worst case scenario? Because even in these cases where you're the vendor and you've got a buyer that doesn't close, you've got a strong case. You'll succeed if you go to litigation. There's so few defenses and they're so hard to run or to be successful on that you're likely gonna succeed. But that's not the end of the story. What's the worst case scenario is you go through all that, you spend the money and you can't enforce the judgment. So then you've got a paper judgment you spent money on and you still have a house you haven't sold. Or, um, you know, the litigator said, well, I'll get you specific performance because they should close this house. And that's not something that you can get really in these transactions anymore. The courts have just gone the other way. And so you need to ask the questions, what's the worst case scenario? So if I go all the way through litigation, what might I come out with at the end of the day? Also, you should always ask, how hard will it be to enforce my judgment if I get it? Because that's actually not easy to do. Um, and a lot of litigators at the point of the enforcing the judgment, they're like, yeah, I'm done. I got your judgment. So, you know, go and find their money. And it's never the end of the story for the client. Yeah, and, and I think that's where uh, the real estate agents come into play too, because a lot of times they get certain information about about the buyer because they should be should have been you know qualifying the buyer up front in the first place. So now you got a defaulting buyer, but they might have certain information that they find out about the buyer and about their financial resources and whether they're trying to sell properties or whether they 
in, in conversation because they can't close because they haven't been able to sell three other properties they own. Well, that's good news. If they own three properties, they've got some assets. So that's important information for Sarah to know as a litigator, as part of the strategy, because you start trying to find out, not only can I get a judgment, but do I have a, are there assets to recover the judgment against? So real estate agents can come up with a lot of information that are really valuable for the process, whether you're trying to negotiate a settlement or whether you start getting into litigation, right? Absolutely. And that's one of the first questions I ask in these types of cases is who's the buyer? What are they? Will they have money at the end of the day? Is it they can't close because they couldn't sell their house, in which case there is money there that when you get the Delta, they'll be able to take some equity out of their house and pay for it. Or is it a situation where they really didn't qualify for a mortgage and they just put a offer in with no conditions, hoping somebody would take it and then they'd figure it out afterwards? Um, there are lots of buyers out there that I've seen that have tried to figure it out afterwards and then they can't and they're stuck. So those are really good questions to ask. And I agree with you, David, the real estate broker is a great source of information for that. Yeah. So, you know, it's important for an agent to, you know, stay involved in this process because look, they're acting for the seller. If, if this buyer defaults, they're going to be selling the property to someone else. So they're still going to get their commission, assuming it eventually, eventually it's going to sell, it's going to sell they're get commission, but they're still involved in the process of dealing with the defaulting buyer as well. And maybe just to go back a little bit, you talked about damages and we we're talking about a trend that doesn't close and we use the term anticipatory breach. I think we threw that out there once. Maybe just explain what that means when you're getting to a closing and there's anticipatory breach and then the types of damages, like what can be included in damages, because we don't know what they are at the time of closing, they have to be assessed afterwards and what might be included in damages. Absolutely. So an anticipatory breach is basically where the party to the other side of the contract is said to you, they're not going to close. So it isn't the closing date. Um, and so they technically haven't yet breached because they haven't failed to close but they've told you in advance they're not going to close. And so in law, an anticipatory breach gives the vendor a couple of options. The first option is that they can accept the anticipatory breach, say that the agreement is not going to be fulfilled and we're going to hold you responsible for all damages. And we're going to start to do what we call mitigate damages, which is uh, in the real estate transaction, put the house back on the market and try to sell it for as much as you can. So that's the anticipated breach. Or you could say, nope, this agreement is enforceable and you're going to close it. In a real estate transaction, because of particularly in this market where it's a falling market, that's not necessarily a wise thing. And I leave it to you, David, to tell the clients, you know, the, the realities of what is going to be, what's going to happen in the market if you don't get your house back on the market as fast as you can and sell it. Um, and so I wouldn't recommend to clients that they try to wait until the closing date and then enforce the agreement. I'd rather take the anticipatory breach say that you are going to be in breach, we're gonna hold you responsible and we're gonna mitigate our damages by trying to sell as soon as possible. So that's the anticipatory breach side of it. But then when it happens and the damages that are included, so there's a delta between what the original purchase price is and what the new purchase price is that you can get when you eventually enter into a new agreement of purchase and sale. 
which everybody has to try to do. You can't just say, well, you didn't close and it's a $600,000 house, so you owe me $600,000. doesn't work that way. You actually have to try to sell the house and minimize those damages. Um, and so in this market, the purchase price is likely going to be a little bit less. In past years, when the market was hot, it was a situation where the new purchase price might be higher. There is no damage. You don't need to see a litigator. Go with the new transaction and hope it closes and enjoy selling your house. Uh, but now with Delta uh, being in the negative, so there's the difference in the purchase price are damages you can incur, as well as the costs that you've had to incur re-putting the house on the market, any expenses you've incurred in order to restage, resell the house. Um, and also you can claim real estate uh, fees. So that would be for brokers and also for real estate lawyers. You never get to claim the litigation fees until the end, but you get to put in there the cost of your real estate lawyer if you've had to pay them more money because they prepared transactional documents that didn't close. Right. So even you know in the old market where you someone defaulted and you put it out there and you actually resold for a higher purchase price, you still may have suffered damages. So it's still a good idea to reserve it. Just which you know, what we would do, we would reserve our right to claim damage. So there isn't a delta on a difference of the purchase price you claim, but maybe they were going to close on August third and now they got to put it back in the market. They're not closing till October third. So they've so they've carrying the property for two months. So they're paying insurance, they're paying utilities, they're paying their mortgage and their line of credit still. So so they've they've got those type of damages that they might still incur. And then at the end of the day, you got to assess well, how much does it all add up to? Yeah. Is this a small claims court thing that I can do on my own, which I never recommend to anybody, or do I get or do I need a Sarah Erskine to act for me on this, whether it's small claims or, or a higher court, it just depends what it all adds up to, right? But, but these days, it's almost an automatic that there might be that delta difference that you're claiming too. So it's a more, so you're almost always got to really consider, you know, that the damages could be significant. It can be, and I forgot, um, thanks for reminding me, David. There's also, if you, the, seller have another house that you have to close um, and you've had to put it back on the market, not only do you have the carrying costs of your current house, but you may have a bridge loan in order to get to the finish line on your new house. And so you've got interest costs there for a bridge loan they would not necessarily have had to have if the closing had happened on time. Yeah, there's also a, a chain reaction that happens on these transactions because now we've got a defaulting buyer. So now I can't sell my house, uh, but I'm supposed to buy another house. And now I can't buy my house. And now I'm going to be in default to my seller because I can't close on my transaction. Maybe my bridge loans falls apart. And then that, that buyer too, or that seller may have a transaction that falls apart. Something there's a whole chain. And how far up the chain could a defaulting buyer be responsible for? That's a great question. And there hasn't been a lot of case law on this issue, um, probably because in the last 10, 15 years up until now, there hasn't really been as a big downturn in the market. There was when they uh, brought in those mortgage changes where they made it a little bit more difficult for people to, to get mortgages and you had to put more money down. It was a bit of a chain reaction, but it was a very limited uh, period in time. So we didn't see as many cases as I thought we might have seen. And then the last time the big dip happened was in 2008. Um, and 
I just at that point in time, I just wasn't probably following the legal rules uh, in these cases well enough to know. So I think that um, in these circumstances, it's possible that a one defaulting purchaser at the end of the line could be responsible for a whole series of damages that go up the line. And it will be interesting to see how the courts will deal with that because they've been very strict in enforcing purchase and sale agreements. So they will enforce up the chain each uh, purchase and sale agreement. And then will the person be able to make a claim uh, for the difference in the damages against the original defaulter? I would assert that claim for sure. And I would see how far I can push the court in order to get as much damages as it can, because but for the first person who defaulted, you wouldn't have had the chain of reaction. And I think in this market, it's foreseeable that that is a damage that can be collected. That's a little mind boggling and scary, <laughs> but I, I think it also would serve as a great deterrent to ensure that, you know, buyers, especially when it comes to buyer remorse, you know, really get that thought out of their head and don't even consider it, right? Because I mean, you know, when, when when a buyer can't close because appraisals don't align or, or their financial situation drastically changes or things are beyond their control, which, again, is not a defense for not being able to close. But, you know, I would argue that, you know, one can understand those reasons. But buyer remorse is one of those reasons where with me personally, I at least uh, there's zero excuse and there should be zero tolerance, right? So it's going to be very interesting to see how the courts rule on that chain reaction. But maybe in a buyer remorse situation, the chain reaction will go further up the line uh, to, to really, you know, deter people from making those sort of uh, decisions. I think that's probably right. And I think that um, if everybody at every level understands how that might lead to the worst case scenario for the purchaser who doesn't close, uh, whether it's from the real estate agent to the brokers to the mortgage brokers. So mortgage brokers don't advise you to walk away from transactions um, to the real estate lawyers, to the litigators. So long as everyone along that chain in, in that uh, group understand the possibility, then they can give the necessary advice to the person who wakes up with the buyer's remorse. The worst people are the ones who just no longer qualify for financing. And those are the people that I feel for the worst and the most, uh, but still the courts enforce those agreements. So it is a really difficult position. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's a difference between like that group of defaulting buyers versus there's another group of, well, I have to sell my, pro I bought, I haven't sold yet. I have to sell my property. I thought it was going to be worth a million dollars. I'm expecting it a million dollars, but now I think I can only get 900 or 950 for it. And I'm, and I just, I'm, but I'm, those are the offers I'm getting, but I'm holding out because I still want to get the million dollars. And the reality is you need the agent to step in. You need the lawyers to step in and say, you know, here's what happens if you don't close and you can't hold out. And you're trying to hold out for an offer that may never come. It, you're probably going to get a lower and lower offer. And you got to just take the best offer and bite the bullet then. Take what you can. Because you're holding out for $50,000. It's going to cost you way more than that $50,000 by not closing. And you know, accept that offer. At, you, know, you, you got nine fifty dollars instead of a million. Accept that. Now you can get your bridge loan. Now you can close your purchase transaction. Now you're not going to be sued. You're not going to crawl these damages. 
that 50,000 would be eaten up so fast by them trying to hold out for an offer that'll never come. Oh, exactly. It just, it doesn't make financial sense and it doesn't make legal sense to me, but uh, sometimes it's just so hard to get people to understand that. But here's a question that I have, if I can flip it to uh, David uh, the, on the broker side. There's been a couple of recent cases that have come out basically where they're enforcing purchase and sale agreements. And the court has said, if you wanted to negotiate conditions that protected you, you should have done it. But I've bought a house in the GTA and I know that nobody wants conditions. So how do you marry up the court's reality with the reality of the real estate market. They're like two ships passing in the night. They are, and it's extremely difficult, Sarah, but it's all reflective in the market and the, um, you know, where the market is headed, right? Even in um, a, a really seller-focused market, you can still get conditions accepted, and it's about, you know, that has to do with the condition, with the relationship you have with the listing agent, Right. If you have a great relationship with the listing agent and you can really sell your your client, um, you know, chances are you could some insert some sort of a condition that offer, be it for a shorter uh, conditional period instead of the five days, maybe you get a two day conditional period. Right. But still, it gives you some time to conduct some sort of a due diligence period for for a particular buyer. So. You know, it, it's always a negotiation and it's always a, conver a conversation, but it's it's very much relationship driven, right? So I say to all my agents, don't focus on just the number, right? Sell the relationship, right? It's, it, it's an emo emotional transaction, so appeal to the seller's emotions and work together to get the deal done. That's great advice because I, so many, almost all of the cases that I have seen, there are no conditions in any of these agreements of purchase and sale. And had there been a condition, a financing condition, um, then there's a hook. There's a, there's ability to say, I can't meet the financing condition. And so therefore I cannot close this transaction and you're not going to be legally responsible for it. But I just don't see those agreements anymore. Very few. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, between 2020 and, 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 you know, probably April of 2022, where we probably saw no conditions in, in any of the offers, right? I mean, it was, uh, you know, extremely difficult when you were working with buyers, right? But um, those situations more than ever require just, you know, a very firm and very tight working with all the professionals, with the mortgage professional, uh, with the home inspector, with the uh, listing agent, and, and constant communication to make sure that you're not putting your buyer in an adverse situation. Um, and it also required the buyers to really have a solid understanding of their financial position and, and how far they can push themselves and, and you know, how quickly they can also get their own house in the market to make sure that they're transacting in the same type of market that they're not buying and selling to different markets and they're able to uh, merge uh, those two transactions. But it, it was very difficult, Sarah, and you're right. You know, those two ships are sailing uh, on the opposite side of each other, but, you know, we still saw tons of deals coming together and tons of meetings of the minds. It was just a very, very difficult situation for buyers. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing the effects of that, right? Now that the market is changing, 
you know, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing the catastrophic effects of, of what that has caused on the other side, you know, uh, properties not appraising, um, buyers not qualifying, and the situation, you know, turning quickly for the worse, right? So again, just having the right professionals on your side, having the right litigation lawyer, having the right mortgage agent, having the right home inspector, having the right um, real estate agent, more important now than ever. And one more question. How do you, in your uh, area, sort of um, bring your clients' expectations into the realm of reality? Because as a litigator, that's often the hard thing, um, and particularly in these types of cases, because I can tell you that you will win. But the reality is, what are you going to win? And can I meet your expectations? Or at the end of the day, are you going to be like, why did I hire you? I, you know, didn't get everything I wanted and I ended up paying you more than I wanted to pay. So how do you bring your clients' expectations back into that circle of reality so that they make good choices? That's a great question, Sarah. And I think it all starts with education and training, right? So the more educated and the better prepared a realtor is to have those tough conversations with clients and the more they're centered around facts around numbers, around statistics, around comparable sales, um, the less ability the seller has to argue with, with those facts and those statistics and the more informed decision they can make, right? So again, it comes down to hiring the right professional that's educated, that knows his numbers, that really understands the market and that can guide their clients through those tough situations. Yeah, and they have to, be part of the process right through. And, you know, we have deals going off the rails. We want to have the discussion that we're having way too often these days with, with sellers is, you know, what happens if it doesn't close, you know, and go through the scenarios. A lot of times I like to get the real estate agent on that, in that meeting, whether it's a Zoom meeting, a phone call, a converse, conference call, whatever it is, because sometimes the, the agent's don't have that information either. They don't know what the answers are. And they say, oh, you know, call David and he'll explain to you. But yeah, but call David, you come on the line too, because you as an agent should learn this and understand the process because you're still part of the process going back to renegotiate for an amendment or doing something. You're going to be part of the process of this goes to Sarah for litigation and, and you're going to be a witness on all this. You have to know it as an agent. You have to understand all these ramifications too. So I'm always encouraging agents to, to continue to be part of the process and don't just say, oh, I don't know the answer. I'm going to hand it off to David and he'll explain it to you. Or we just, you know, retain Sarah and she'll explain it to you. The agents should stay involved. They got to understand this too. Yeah, I, I think having one centralized message where everybody's giving the clients the same information or, or, or you know, very similar information. Of course, Sarah can go, you know, peel back a lot more layers when it comes to the litigation than, you know, David's office when it comes to those matters. But as long as the information is similar in nature um, and, 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 you know, it kind of comes from a unified perspective, um, I think uh, that's the kind of guidance that the clients need to really make the best and the most informed decisions. I agree. I think there's a synergy and an interrelationship uh, between all the professionals. And in order to get the best advice throughout every stage, everybody has to know what the other professionals are going to advise. Yeah. 
I've got a, a question. Let's say let's go back to now. We're back in our anticipatory breach scenario, or or maybe it wasn't anticipatory. Just they def, we have a defaulting buyer. You know, as a real estate, we've sent our letter saying you're in default. Blah blah blah. We're going to sue your pants off. We're going to hire Sarah. Um, but we, we have an obligation to to mitigate. We're going to put the property back on the market. Okay, and we want to keep. We want the deposit. Okay, the the brokerage is holding the deposit, so we want that deposit. And then the, the brokerage says, well, I can't give you that deposit. I can't release that to the seller, even though the seller is probably entitled to it, unless the parties sign a mutual release. Do the yeah. parties sign a mutual release? No, the parties should not sign a mutual release. And it is true. The brokerage is not going to hand over a deposit. So they want one of two things. They want a mutual release or they want an order requiring them to hand it over. And so um, when they come back, and I've had these sort of situations where you know brokers have said, well, I want a mutual release so that the parties enter into a mutual release. And then they come talk to me and I say, well, you've already released them. So you have given up your right to sue in order to get the deposit. And so you've already agreed that your damages are limited to the deposit by signing the mutual release. So in suing them is not going to get you any further. So my advice is always don't sign a mutual release. Um, real estate agents and brokerages, um, they have to hold those deposits in trust. They're there, they're safe. So you don't have to fight over the deposit right away. Figure out what the rights are, what your damages are. Is it worth fighting over it? Or is it worth you know, negotiating for a release of the deposit depending on how big it is? Those are things that, a, you should talk to a litigator before you do anything, and B, you got to work with a real estate agent and the litigator to figure out what are the potential damages, how much is the delta going to be, and what's the best choice. Yeah, David, that, that's an excellent comment because we see all too often in the industry, the minute that the deal doesn't come together, uh, the realtors are rushing to get that mutual release signed, right? And the problem there is once he signed that mutual release, you relinquish all your rights to sue, to for claims, for damages, and they're only really limited to the deposit and that mutual release. You direct the deposit where the deposit should go, and the minute all parties sign, the brokerage has to act on that deposit and release the funds. So um, if there is a breach, first thing you should do is never sign a mutual release. Talk to David's office, talk to Sarah's office, understand your rights, um, and you have time, you know, time is on your side. You don't have to make these decisions right away. You, you, you have time to make these decisions and to, to determine with the help of professionals, what the best course of action may be. Well, what, what I've heard from a lot of agents sometimes, David, is the deposit is one issue. You know, people, you know, this, the seller wants to get that deposit. Eventually they're going to get it. But the other issue is a timing issue. They think, oh, I got to go resell this property. So I don't have the right to resell this property unless I get a release from the buyer, the defaulting buyer, because he's under a contract. So I, I need a release in order to, re, to in order to put the property back on the market. So Sarah, maybe you clarify that for us. Um, I was actually just going to say before you said that, that this is sort of the scenario that I see is that there's this misconception that you have to have a release to resell the property. No, what you have to do is you have to put the buyer on notice 
that you that they are breaching the agreement, that you're going to hold them responsible, and that you're going to resell the property to mitigate the damages. Once you do that, then you can resell the property and they've already breached the agreement of purchase and sale. So you can resell the property. You don't have to rush to get a mutual release in order to get a deposit released. That's just not a step that you have to do. And I think that's a big misconception out there um, so that real estate agents think that that's what's necessary to resell the property. It's not. Sarah, at the point of if you're a buyer and you get notified that, hey, you know, there's, we're, you know, anticipating a breach, uh, we're going to mitigate our damages, we're going to put the house back on the market. At that point, as soon as you get that notice, can the buyer do anything at all to um, um, circumvent the breach? You can't really circumvent the breach unless you say, I'm going to close. And, and or if it's a deposit, you immediately pay the deposit. Then the seller really isn't out any money at that point if you can cure your breach right away. Um, the best thing I think for a buyer to do, if they get that type of letter, they should contact legal counsel right away. And then you want to start trying to negotiate how best you can get out of this transaction if you have to get out of it or how to negotiate an amendment to the transaction so you can close it. Right. Because I mean, that's, you know, that's the one thing that um, not enough people talk about is how do you revive the transaction if there is a breach? Because there are certain ways of, of reviving that transaction. And, and actually, I came across a situation a couple of weeks ago, which I thought was really brilliant, where um, there was an agreement of purchase and sale signed. Um, no deposit was delivered. So there was a was a breach. And what happened was the uh, realtor um, put the property back on the market. However, she inserted a clause C to the uh, agreement that all competing offers needed to submit, which was a 10-day uh, uh, seller's due diligence condition. Mm -hmm. And she later disclosed the amount of the new purchase price to the defaulting buyer and said, listen, I'm giving you eight days uh, to um, you know, um, cure your breach and, and proceed with the original agreement of purchase and sale. Otherwise, we're giving you notice that we're going to uh, waive the, the seller due diligence condition. We're going to proceed with the second offer. And you now know what the amount of damage is, uh, what the Delta variant is. And I thought that was actually really brilliant um, because what you're doing is you're still acting in the uh, original seller's best interest by getting them the absolute best purchase price by giving that original buyer a chance to uh, cure their breach. That's fantastic. I actually have never heard of this happening, but so much of the, the litigation side of it is it's a bit of a black hole until there's actually a sale because you don't know what the damages could be. Right. And I think, I'm not sure buyers <laughs> quite understand how much they could be on the hook for yeah. um, until they actually see that. That's an excellent way of dealing with it because then they see, they, these are the hard numbers. This is what it's going to sell for unless you uh, complete your original purchase and you cure it. And then the seller is not on the hook by you know agreeing to a new agreement of purchase and sale with a new buyer. They still get the opportunity to close at the higher price. And if not, they have, a, they have another option. That's genius. 
Yeah, and I think it puts the seller even in a in a more commanding position because if you if 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 that that point the the original buyer still doesn't close the transaction, then I think you your position is that much strengthened when you do go to court. And you oh, know you yes. can actually say to the judge, look, like he's been given so many chances to cure and and to make good on his original APS. And then, you know, even knowing the damage amount, he's still reneged. Um, so uh, I, I think the judge in that case, um, definitely, you know, you mentioned um, summary judgment, right? So I, I think that would be a great candidate and make your case a lot stronger. Oh, I agree. Because um, the mitigation is generally the hardest part. The really only defense that somebody has to the amount of the damages when they fail to close an agreement of purchase and sale is that there wasn't proper mitigation. The only case I've ever been successful when I'm defending somebody who didn't um, close an agreement of purchase and sale was to say, you didn't mitigate appropriately, so the damages are not as high as what you think they are. And then we were able to succeed in that, in, in that way. If you are disclosing all the way along all the attempts at mitigation and you keep that buyer fully informed, they have nothing to argue when they get to court that you didn't properly mitigate because you took all the steps and at no point did they come back and say, wait a minute, you should be able to sell that house for more. Right. That's great advice. Uh, there's another thing that maybe you could clear up for us, Sarah, the difference between we got a defaulting buyer. They had a $50,000 deposit, let's say. They don't close, okay? Innocent seller, just clear defaulting buyers. So the seller is going to end up with that $50,000 deposit eventually, okay? Whether it's released right away or they got to get a quarter, they're going to get that money, okay? But in addition to that, there, there's also a claim for damages for, for the delta, for the legal costs, for the, the utilities, the insurance, all the, the different types of damages that might incur. Can a seller get all those damages in addition to that $50,000 deposit, or is that $50,000 deposit applied against those damages? That's a great question, because most people think that when you put a deposit down, that if you then don't close, it's just a, a straight up forfeiture of the deposit without any consideration as to whether or not that's actually the amount of the damages. In contract law, we don't have penalty clauses. So there used to be a situation where you could say, well, if you don't close the transaction, then there's a $25,000 penalty. So you have to pay $25,000 in addition. That's not something that uh, is enforceable anymore. And so you, you should not expect to get the full deposit plus the full delta in the purchase price, plus the full amount of any out-of-pocket expenses. The court, when you go to, at the end of the day, will balance all these things and they will figure out what the total damages are and the deposit will be a portion of the total damages. And so don't think that it's a windfall because it's not. Yeah, in, in theory, there could be a windfall. You correct me if I'm wrong, but in theory, there could be. You could get the 50,000 deposit plus whatever the other damages are. So at the end of the day, there might be a windfall, but the judges have discretion is my understanding of the law yes. to take the whole picture in and and they don't really want to penalize a default even a defaulting buyer by giving the seller a windfall but they want to make sure the seller's not out any money but if you had a buyer that acted in bad faith 
and and that you know goes to the judge and they see that they you know they didn't make appropriate efforts to try and close or whatever they weren't acting good faith a judge does have discretion to say you know i'm going to let the seller have a bit of a windfall because they right they have that type of discretion they can and how we generally do that now is that we make a claim under um, the duty of honesty and good faith and performance of a contract and so our courts have um now highlighted what they've actually just confirmed what was always there, which is sort of a bit of the discretion when people act in bad character to be able to award damages for that. There is a duty that everybody has to perform every contract honestly and in good faith. And so if the buyer is not um, engaging in that type of conduct, if they're doing things in bad faith, they're not being honest and they're not performing the contract appropriately, then you're right. There's the potential that the court will award the deposit on top of, and they'll, they'll actually just make it as part of a category of damages. So it'll be an additional category of damages. But in general, and in most cases that I've seen, um, the courts have generally taken the deposit as a percentage of the total overall um, damages. And so you shouldn't expect a windfall. You might, but I think you've got a higher hurdle to get that windfall. Yeah, but I always want the client to be aware of that. Like there is that potential that it could be, yeah, you lose your deposit and you could be responsible for damages above it because you just never know if you're that guy if you're, and, you're, and you got that judge that's going to award it. So look at, like you talk about the worst case scenario. So you want them to understand the worst case scenario so they can make their decisions based on that. Because if everything goes bad, how much could this could really cost them? And then you try and work off that. And, you know, you hire Sarah, so she's not gonna, so you're not going to have the worst case scenario because she's going to get you a better result than that and give you guidance. So we're going to reduce that, but, but understand that potentially that's out there and that might just scare them a little bit or get their attention. And then you work back from, from that. I agree because um, when you're the seller or whether you're the buyer, your litigation counsel should always tell you what the worst case scenario is. The worst case scenario is, is you're going to get hit by the court with lots of damages, lots of costs. Um, and that the, the seller is going to be 100% not out of pocket and you are going to be 100% paying for all of that. So I think you have to advise the client that and they have to realize that that's a risk going in. When you're balancing the risks, closing litigation, that risk has to be in there. Yeah, I, I think the uh, the threat of, of you know, all, all these uh, worst case scenarios to, to the buyer is probably what makes the whole system work and, you know, keeps, uh, keeps uh, the transactions closing, keeps the, the uh, both sides honest in the transaction. Um, you know, I think the deterrent of that is, is extremely important and how our legal system and, um, you know, how everything functions together. If a buyer comes to me and says, I can't close, my advice to them is, let's try to figure this out. <laughs> How am we going to get you to close? Because your worst case scenario starts when you don't close. Right. I love that. And, and I love the message. I got one last question, I think, for you, Sarah. Like, you get retained, you're, you know, you're now on, you get involved in the process. What percentage, I don't know if you can answer this, but what percentage of these cases, once you're retained, actually would go all the way to a judgment versus you're involved as a litigation lawyer, but you're still negotiating every step of the way if there's an opportunity to settle, right? 
absolutely settle versus you know get a judgment like you know what what are the percentages maybe I would say of all of the cases that get uh, I get consulted on or get started in litigation, I would say probably 80 to 90 of them settle. And we as litigators are not serving our clients well unless we are constantly looking for opportunities to settle because you need to minimize the costs, you need to minimize the damages. Um, it doesn't help anyone if you're trying to run the table straight to trial. Um, we should, it's our professional obligation, we should always be looking for ways to try to settle litigation. Um, and I work with real estate counsels, so the actual transaction lawyers all the time, trying to settle transactions, work deals. Last week, I just did a revival of an agreement of purchase and sale because there was a breach. And I um, advised my client, we've got to figure this out. We've got to figure out how to get you out of this breach um, and in a position where you can fulfill this contract because otherwise this is a lot of money you could be on the hook for. Yeah, great advice. And, and that's the whole key that everybody should, the, the biggest takeaway, and David mentioned it before, you got to have the right people giving you advice. And it's, and it's not one of us, it's a whole team. And, and these days, you know, having, uh, you know, the proper litigation lawyer involved, unfortunately, you're, you're an absolute necessity right now on all these transactions, just so much of it there. So you have to, everybody has to understand, they have the right team and the agents have to be working with the lawyers like me that are trying to close deals and then working with the litigation lawyer. We all got to be on the same page. We're all acting for the same client. And if there's a way to get a transaction revived and closed, like that's a great result a lot of times for the clients. I agree, David. I tell, I counsel all of the junior lawyers in our office. What solves the client's problem and how do we get there? And if you think of that, even if as a litigator, if you always keep that at the top of your mind, then you're always looking for solutions uh, to help the client and litigation isn't always the solution. Yeah. Awesome, Sarah. Well, listen, this is a very timely episode. Thank you so much for jumping uh, on with us. And, you know, uh, I, I love these type of conversations because I, I feel like they bring a resolution to the final step in the process once everything else breaks down. So uh, thank you very much. And, you know, I've had the personal pleasure of working with your office on more than one occasion. And uh, you've always come through uh, amazingly well for us. So to everybody listening, I would highly, highly encourage you guys to reach out to Sarah's office. She's an amazing professional and uh, uh, you're going to really thoroughly enjoy working with her as much as you possibly can when it comes to litigation. None of my clients really like working with me. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. It was great. This was a pleasure and good luck with the rest of the podcast. Thank you, Sarah. Okay. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks. Bye-bye.